When I was 18 years old, and that was a long, long time ago, I was involved in training army cadets. Um, You'll discover the longer you know me that there's lots and lots of sides to my life. Um, But I was, I was an army cadet instructor, and on one occasion when our unit was taking part in a training course at a location not very far from Edinburgh, myself and another instructor got chatting to some regular army service personnel one evening in the sergeant's mess. Turned out that they were uh, part of a well-known parachute display team. And it didn't take much persuasion on their part to convince me and my colleague to do a parachute jump with them the following morning. Something I wanted to do for years. And uh, I was just so excited about the prospect. And who better to do it with than a group of highly trained experts. Uh, We didn't get much sleep that night. The idea was that uh, after some breakfast, we would get some basic drill and uh, training, and then we would go up over an airfield, and under the watchful eye of our instructor, we would jump from a small plane, briefly experiencing, we were told, free fall at a downwards acceleration of 33 feet per second per second, or 9.8 meters per second per second if you've gone metric. Uh, That's without wind resistance, that's the gravitational pull of the earth, as some of you already figured out. Then our chutes would open automatically, and we would drift gracefully to the floor and it wasn't going to cost us a penny absolutely for free can you imagine our disappointment when the following morning we were told that overnight weather conditions had changed for the worse and the jump was cancelled as we were moving on from that military camp the next again day right till now I have never fulfilled my dream of taking a parachute jump It was a missed opportunity. And we missed it due to no fault of our own, but it was very, very disappointing. Uh, I think I'm a little bit overweight and a little bit unfit now to even think about it, so if you're going to make me the offer at the end, uh, think about something else. (laughs) You know, in the greater scheme of things, missing that parachute jump opportunity hasn't really affected me. Although, as I reflected on this week, some landing skills may have been of benefit when I fell out of bed on Wednesday morning and tweaked my back. But reading, in our reading tonight, there Luke speaks of several missed opportunities that really, in the greater scheme of things, are the worst imaginable that could ever happen to a person. Let's turn uh, to Luke 13 and verse 22. We're following on from where James was teaching last week on opportunity knocks. And uh, as I was listening to him, I came up with the idea that we need to call this missed opportunities. But in Luke 13, 22 through 35, let's read God's word together. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you and and taught in our street, as you taught in our streets. But he will reply, 
I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last will be first. And first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. We start um, in the first two verses there that we read together tonight with what I think is a leading theoretical question. The question is, how many will be saved? The question regarding the final number of those who would be saved by God was a well-debated theme among the rabbis of Jesus' day. And the general consensus um, that's recorded for us in history is that the rabbis thought that really all Israel would be saved, with the exception of a very few renegade uh, sinners who basically chose not to be. Uh, It also included, among the saved, some proselytized Gentiles who had been baptized into Israel, and who sought to obey the law and to conform to the religious and social norms of Judaism. Of course, that question about, am I going to be saved, or how many is going to be saved, is a well-debated question even today. Whenever a person dies, invariably the mourning relatives or the friends conclude that the person has, and I quote, gone to a better place, unquote particularly if the person has suffered as the result of illness, disease, or injury. Of course, this is the great hope of the Christian. But it is also an expression, the person has gone to a better place, is often heard on the lips of people who have no faith or religious experience whatsoever. And like Israel of old, many people today conclude that there will be, of course, exceptions. Not everyone is going to be saved. People who are guilty of war crimes, murderers, violent rapists, or people who abuse children deserve, and again, uh, quote, to rot in hell. There is that sort of expression around, even as we, dis- as we discuss this in today's world. But, as the thinking goes, good, normal people who haven't committed heinous sins, and here sin, of course, would be uh, understood as crimes against humanity, will surely go to this better place. Having been brought up in a fairly um, typical evangelical uh, world, my interpretation of heaven and hell is very much influenced uh, by how evangelicals interpret the Bible. 
And therefore, maybe you can appreciate sometimes the concern I have when well-meaning Christians say of a non-Christian who has died, well, at least now their suffering is over. I realize for some people here tonight that these are quite difficult words because you do have concern over where the loved one that has died has gone. And I in no intention at all want to make that worse for you, to cause you any distress or concern. But as with any of life's big or little questions, we need to turn to the final authority of God's word to find the answers. And so it was, as people listened to Jesus' um, moral and ethical teaching, their conclusion was that his moral and ethical teaching was so high and perfect then that hardly anyone would be able to obey it or to live it out in their day-to-day experience, uh, prompting them to ask the question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, before we look in depth at Jesus' answer to that question, can I just draw your attention to these seemingly insignificant words at the beginning of verse 22? If you've got your Bibles, it might be helpful just to follow through as I refer to some of these verses. Now remember why Luke has gone to the trouble of compiling this gospel. Back in Luke 1 and verse 3 through 4, he says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is writing this to a friend. This gospel is primarily written to one person, And he gives the reason why he's writing it. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So as we come to this word tonight, that I want to to help you see from the authority of God's word, that you can stand with certainty. Not with a false hope or a speculative hope, but with absolute certainty in what God's word teaches um, in regard to this very um, thought-provoking question, how many will be saved? Now, it strikes me that, before we leave that, that Luke doesn't waste words, so it's important to understand the significance, um, and we'll just refer to this very briefly, of what is referred to by commentators um, commentating on Luke's Gospel as the travel references. Um, Commentators are divided, as they ever are, on secondary issues, as to the location of the towns of the villages mentioned here in our reading tonight. But um, this is my theory, and, and there are commentators who believe it. Like, I was talking to James in the office during the week, and I said, I've got some really um, fixed views on the Scripture, and I'm going to find commentators who agree with me. Um, and I didn't do that. I did, I did read a bit more broadly than just uh, people who would agree with me. But assuming that what is written in John 10 fits chronologically with where we're at in Luke's Gospel here. And there is an assumption there, although I believe it's a fairly strong one. Then Jesus' movements seem to have taken him after the Feast of Dedication, the last Feast of Dedication that he he celebrates in Jerusalem, back across the Jordan River where John originally was baptizing. And I believe that he's in in the area governed by Herod in Perea. Some commentators would disagree with that, but, but... Hang in there with me, because I think it's got some purpose to, to saying that. Jesus' ministry has always had purpose to it. 
He doesn't do anything haphazardly. His ministry isn't left to coincidence. Ever since as a child, he declared to Mary and Joseph in the temple that he had to be about his father's business. He has followed the divine pattern and the divine timetable. Now that little phrase, as he made his way to Jerusalem, I believe not only refers to his travel schedule, but actually to Jesus' orientation towards that city. In Luke 9 and 51, we have already read and studied together as a church that Luke says there of Jesus, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It literally means that he set his face towards Jerusalem. For Jesus, the holy city wasn't simply a geographical location. Since it was foreordained in the eternal plan of salvation that Jerusalem would be the stage for fulfillment of the greatest event that the entire history of the universe would experience. For it would be in Jerusalem, at Calvary's hill, the Son of God would die for the sins of the world, be raised back to life again, and on the third day, he would open the kingdom of God to everyone who believes in his name and trusts him for salvation. And as we will see later on in our study tonight, that not even the threat of an earthly despotic ruler will deter Jesus from sticking to the timetable, this divine timetable that ensures that his final visit to Jerusalem will occur at the divinely appointed time and accomplish the divinely ordained results. So back to the question now. Jesus responds to the question about numbers, presents us with two extremely challenging questions of our own in relation to the kingdom of God. And the first question is, are we included or excluded? Verses 24 through 30. Do you notice how Jesus doesn't draw attention to how many, but rather to who will enter the kingdom? And he talks about this narrow door. Back in Luke 4 and verse 19, Jesus had told his hearers in Nazareth that he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, quoting Isaiah 49 verse 8, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I help you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. We still live in that day. We still live in the year of the Lord's favor. And the saved, those who enter the kingdom, are those who hear his words and heed his invitation. They seize the opportunity now, knowing that that opportunity won't always be available to them. It made me think of that record back in Genesis of how Noah was told to build an ark because God was going to bring his judgment. Can you imagine Noah being so far from the sea in a landlocked country and not a cloud in the sky? How foolish he must have looked to his fellow citizens of that land. He would have been mocked and ridiculed. But um, Noah took advantage of the limited opportunity 
afforded to him and his family. And they alone experience salvation from the judgment of God and the destruction that the flood had when it covered the earth. Now back to verse 25 there in our reading tonight. We can see that attempts to enter into salvation once the door of opportunity is closed will be futile. Remember back in Genesis, it is God who shuts the door of the ark. And the rains come down. And as the children's chorus says, and the floods came up. God closed the door. I wonder why God closed the door and didn't give Noah the responsibility of doing that. Well, Noah knew lots and lots of people in his time and community. Not just his sons and his daughters-in-law. He knew Mr. and Mrs. Smith who lived next door and Mr. and Mrs. Jones across the road. He knew all the people. And when they realized that they too were in danger, can you imagine that there would be people saying, Noah, let us in. Noah, let us in. And had it been left to Noah about who got in and who did not get in the ark, he may have relented and said, well, yeah. But God had closed the door and it was beyond Noah's ability to open it. And so it will be with salvation that is offered to us in Jesus. Let's look at the questions here that it raises for us. Does the narrow door limit the number of people who can pass through it? Or does it mean that the time to enter through it is limited? Well, verse 24 would seem to indicate the former, that it seems to limit the number of people who's going to get into the kingdom. But verse 25 um, seems to suggest that it's a limited time span in which people may enter. So I think we can, pers- I personally think we can uh, take it to mean both. So let's look at, first of all, why I think it can mean limited numbers. Well, the way of salvation is not easy. Because the way of salvation offered to you and I tonight through Jesus Christ cuts straight across every vestige of human pride and sinful independence. Listen to Jesus' very similar teaching in the Sermon on the Mount some years before this incident when he was up north in Galilee. In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Limited numbers. Only a few find it. Not everyone will be saved. That's not the same as saying that salvation is available to everyone or is not available to everyone. We discover in John 10 and verse 9 that entrance into salvation is only through Jesus who says, I am the gate. Jesus is the narrow gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. At the close of the parable of the great kingdom banquet, um, Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 14, Many are invited, the authorized version says called, uh, the NIV says, Many are invited, but few are chosen. Limited numbers into this experience that the Bible describes as salvation through Jesus Christ. And secondly, and I also believe meaningfully for us tonight, limited time. 
The owner of the house in verse 25 is none other than Jesus Christ. So in verse 27, it is Christ himself who rebuffs the attempts of those who plead for admittance and sends them away as people he never knew. The reality that the time span of the day of salvation is limited. That's reflected many times throughout the Gospels and in other parts of Scripture. And in speaking in parables reflecting the correct protocol of his day, in respect of banquets, weddings, and on other occasions, Jesus' hearers were left in no doubt at all what he was intending them to understand. The moment in which you can be saved is limited. It is brief. And Scripture makes that absolutely obvious to you and me tonight. There is, the time is limited, first of all, by the number of days of our lives. Um, I'm 49 years old. I may see threescore year and ten. I may live till I'm a hundred. I have a birthday in January that I may never see. No one knows what tomorrow holds. The days of our lives are limited. The number of the days of our lives are limited. And it is only during the days of your living here on earth that you can make the step towards Jesus and receive him as Saviour. Many, many years ago, a very good friend of mine whose mother had just passed away, and as far as we know, my friend's mother was not a believer. And he's a lovely Christian man, served alongside me in ministry, and he came to me this one day and he said, I'm just so upset that my mom has passed away. And I put my arm around him and I said, I can, just, I can understand that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but Rodney, I just, even though she didn't make a decision for herself, I... I want to believe that somehow I can make a decision for her. And I said, but, but you know the Scriptures. You can't do that. I know, he says, but I so want to. And the reality is that all of us who know Jesus as Savior, we so want to make decisions for other people, but we know we can't. It is within the scope of the limited time of their days that they have to make that decision for themselves. Secondly, the days are limited. The time is limited between the period of Jesus' first and his second coming. You see, I may not see my 50th birthday, not because I die, but because Jesus might come back to planet Earth, even as he promised he would. It's only a few weeks ago that I was standing at the funeral of a very young friend of ours, uh, and it just seemed one of these occasions that well, I just, can't, I just don't know what God's doing most of the time in relation to the way he deals with people. A 36-year-old mother of three died of breast cancer. And I'm standing at her funeral, uh, mourning her loss, but feeling actually more sorrowful for my friend who has lost his wife and has to bring up his three little girls on his own. Wonderful Christian man, great Christian pastor. And as I stood there, I had this, just this thought came into my mind, Lord Jesus, you're com- your word says that you're coming back to earth one day. Now would be a cool time to do it. Because we were standing there at that open grave with the three little girls missing their mum. And I thought, man, this would be a good funeral 
service, Jesus turned her up with a trumpet blast. And uh, I think crazy thoughts like that from time to time. I was going to keep it to myself, but as I drove back home that afternoon, my daughter and my son was with me, and I thought, oh, just chatting away. And I said, do you know, I just had the weirdest thought when I was at that funeral service today. And I told them, and my daughter said, you know, I had exactly the same thought. And you know, one of these days it's going to happen. One of these days we're going to hear that trumpet sound and the archangel is going to pronounce that it's time for Jesus to come back to planet Earth. And when he comes, the space in which you can become a Christian exists no longer. It's ended. It's over. And so it's a limited time in which you can be saved. If you hear his voice today and reject him, there is no guarantee that you may ever hear the invitation to follow him again. And I don't say that with any sense of scaremongering. That's the reality, my friends. That now, tonight, here in this place, may be the last opportunity that you have to put your trust in Jesus. There's a myth around today, it's always been here, that you can come to Jesus whenever you wish, and whether whether it's convenient to you. Do not be fooled. It's simply not the case. I know that preaching has moved on, excuse me, into a place where we don't like to talk about these things, but preachers of a bygone era made that point again and again and again. And a friend of ours who was at a youth camp some years ago uh, had heard preaching about the second coming of Jesus and about the eminence of that second coming of Jesus and how it was going to appear and when it, and, and when it comes, then it's all over. That night she's sitting in her bed uh, pondering about these things in her heart and she was, uh, the camp was on an island where there was a lighthouse and the fog had come down that night and attached to the lighthouse was this big foghorn. And in the middle of the night the big foghorn goes, Roo! she thought it was the second coming <laughs> and, and you can ask her to this day, she in an instant said, yes, Lord. <laughs> and it's been a commitment that she's, she's kept to uh, throughout many, many years. Matthew in verse, chapter 24, verse 42 says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day in which your Lord will come. Remember these words that we read a few weeks ago in the parable of the rich man? In Luke 12, just the chapter before, in verse 16, And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. So my plea with you is don't put it off. Do not put it off. Come to Jesus for salvation while there is still time available to you and when the door, the narrow door of opportunity is still open. That word translated make every effort really means to agonize over the decision. It's not to be done flippantly. It's not to be done lightly. Trust Jesus. Mm, Trust Jesus. Mm." It means to agonize over it. Becoming a Christian isn't easy. 
But it is still possible. But it won't always be possible, as our reading very clearly warns us. If I can pick up just briefly on on what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, the contradiction or the opposite of the narrow door, the narrow gate, is that broad road. The reason that many people miss the narrow door is because they're content to be on the broad road that leads to destruction. It's an easy road. It's a road where everyone mainly does whatever pleases him or her. And tragically, we discover here that this broad road can even have an element of religious experience or observance to it. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Jewish listeners, descendants of Abraham, to hear these words and to assimilate what Jesus was teaching? They're assuming that the religious heritage and their Jewish birthright guarantees admission to the kingdom of God. And yet that double, uh, that repetition of these words, I don't know you or where you come from in verses 25 or 27, only I think heighten the sense of rejection that they're going to feel. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you're a member of Charlotte Chapel. Maybe you play a musical instrument. Maybe you teach some of our youth or children's departments. But you know that you have never ever really confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You've never surrendered absolute authority and power to Him to rule over everything. You know, you're just a kind of light-hearted Christian. I do my own thing during the week and I come and I'm, well, I'm a, ah, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm going to get saved eventually. Are you? Are you? The people, the Jewish people of Jesus' day had that assumption. And yet Jesus said to them, go away. I never knew you. Of course you knew us. We were there in the streets when you, when you taught and, and when you preached and when you healed. And, and elsewhere, some of them will even say, and actually we did some of that stuff too. And Jesus says, no, really all that counts is this personal relationship where you've surrendered your heart to me and I know you and you know me. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter that you had your name on the church roll and that you, you played in the orchestra or the band or that you taught in the Sunday school or that you went on short-term mission. It doesn't even, doesn't even matter you went to Bible college and became a pastor. That doesn't matter if Jesus doesn't know you. The one thing and the one thing only that will count is a personal relationship with Jesus. Whereby we have trusted him for salvation. We've recognized our own spiritual poverty and our sinful guilt before God. And we surrender our lives completely to him and ask him to save us from our sin and from ourselves. The thief on the cross did it right at the last minute and heard these words today with me in paradise. That can be your experience that you can give up on everything, surrender to Jesus and know his saving power. We're going to move on um, to the second point that I want to make, and it is the last one, so don't worry about the time. Um, I was preaching yesterday at my son's church, took my watch off, and I, he said, it means absolutely nothing. I've watched you for the last 15 years. It means nothing whatsoever. Three things I want to say about um, verses 31 through 35. The first question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we included or are we excluded? The second question is this, will we be protected or will we be destroyed? 
In this we see something of Jesus' destiny. In these remaining verses we get Jesus expressing that strong sense of destiny as he travels towards Jerusalem for the final time. Yet that said, notice he's in no rush. Even when the Pharisees approach him with this warning that Herod has the signs in his life, Jesus determines to stay about his father's business. Elsewhere in John 14 and verse 10, Jesus will declare, The words I say to you are not my own, rather it is my Father living me who is doing his work. Jesus does nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing, John 5 and verse 19. And so in Jesus' reply to Herod, we can uh, both understand it as a rebuff to Herod's threats, but also an encouragement to the first recipient of this gospel, remember Theophilus, and subsequently uh, all believers, that Jesus will not be thwarted from fulfilling his ministry and reaching his goal. And that gives you and I great assurance. Because Jesus says that once you surrender your life to him and he has a hold of you, then none can pluck you out of his hand. Jesus will accomplish your salvation even as he accomplished uh, that sense of going to Jerusalem in the first century. He will continue to confront the power of Satan's kingdom by demonstrating his power and authority over sickness, disease, demonic influence, a theme repeated again and again and again in Luke's gospel, until that only in a few weeks or months' time he will die as the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, securing eternal salvation for all those who will enter his kingdom through that narrow door. That's Jesus' destiny, to go to Jerusalem, to die on the cross, so that you and I may be saved. Second thing I see here is something of Jesus' sorrow. Mention of Jerusalem and Jesus' subsequent lament over her failure to accept his offer of salvation just reveals how sad and how sorrowful his heart over everyone who rejects him. Walter Liefeld describes Jerusalem as both the place of our Lord's passion and the pathetic unwilling object of his love. Some years ago, a Bible college student from a particular tradition went out to preach to a church. And when he came back on the Monday morning, he said to his fellow students, as they were sharing about what they'd preached about in the churches and the experience that they'd had when they'd been out over the weekend, and he said, I was preaching hell and damnation. He says, I gave that congregation a whiff of the pet. The Bible college principal took him aside and said, next time you even mention hell from the pulpit, do it with a tear in your eye. Because that's what Jesus did. The concept of people going to a lost eternity breaks our Savior's heart. But human will and responsibility, he will not wrestle from us. And so we see Jesus' sorrow. In a relatively short period of time, Jesus will ride triumphantly into Jerusalem where he will be hailed king by what I believe is the visiting predominantly Galilean crowds. There will be other people from Jerusalem in that crowd, no doubt. But even as he has the present and eternal welfare of this glorious city in his heart, so he will humbly and gently ride into the heart of the city. But even though he speaks tenderly to her, 
with wooing words. She will reject him. She will spurn his affection that would otherwise have led to her salvation. What a picture this is of how the Savior speaks to each one of us here tonight. He has our very best interests at heart. A verse I read frequently at funeral services from 1 Corinthians 2 and 9. Paul says, There no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God is so amazingly interested in our future. Jesus, by his Spirit and by his word, tonight, even here, he humbly and he gently approaches the very center of our hearts. When he rode into Jerusalem, she rejected him and all that he came to offer her. And within a matter of days, he was crucified outside the city wall. Christ has been crucified outside your heart. And he longs to be invited in. When you lower your resistance to him, and you surrender your life and you invite him to take control of the center of your life, he comes in and he brings all the merits of saving grace with him. At the precise moment you accept him as Savior and Lord, you in turn are assured salvation and entrance into his kingdom through that narrow door. We see from Scripture on at least a couple of occasions the writer's telling us that Jesus longed to embrace Jerusalem as a mother hen covers her chicks, sitting like they were there just on their own. And then when you shift them, disturb them, they can, they can have anything from a dozen to 15 little chicks hidden on their person. Completely sheltered, completely protected. That's what Jesus wants to do with Jerusalem. Actually, that's what Jesus wants to do with you. Jesus wants to overshadow you with his love and his protection. Jesus wants to spread himself around you and gather, him into, uh, gather you into his embrace. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, we have that concept of God overshadowing his people. Even this morning, as Colin was preaching from Jeremiah, we had that sense in which through the prophet, God was saying to Jerusalem, I want to do this for you. But she would not. And here, Jerusalem is rejecting again the love of God. It's a sad reality that, of course, even the religious people thought that they were overshadowed by God's protection. How misled and how misguided they were. And it brings us thirdly and finally to Jesus' judgment. And this is Jesus, the Savior, who is also the judge. It's not a split personality. It's not a different God. It's not a different Son of God who does the judging from the one who does the saving. And he says in verse 35, I would have done this, but since you won't accept me, Luke, your house is left to you, desolate. These are incredibly sad words. Think of the invocation. Jerusalem could have had Jesus embrace her, save her and protect her, but instead he gives her back to herself and her own ability to govern her people. And one day again he will ride back into Jerusalem in glory and will again triumphantly ride to the heart of that city, 
This time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Messiah and Lord, only it will be too late. And so we come in conclusion to the one final practical question. It's not that Jesus hasn't done enough or had no desire to see the lost saved. Observe what he did for Jerusalem and yet she rejected him. He would have, but she would not. And it is not that Jesus hasn't done enough or has no desire to see you saved. Observe what he has done for you. And I ask you the question, will you reject him too? One day Jesus will return in glory, and your knee will bow to his majesty, and your tongue will acknowledge that he is Lord. But if you haven't willingly confessed him in life before that great and awful day, then your confession on the day, true and honorable to the Son of God, as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is, it will still be too late. Here again his invitation to you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. The important question is not how many will be saved, but the question really is, will the saved include you? Let us pray.